Matthew 27, verse 45 to 54. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with several wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of their tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. What's the hardest thing that you have ever had to do? When I was uh, younger, probably now about 20 years ago, uh, our primary school took a camp of an entire year level of year sevens on a school camp. Now this is not a school camp like you have it here in Australia where you go to the local campsite, oasis or whatever, and everyone stays in cabins on site uh, and you gather together in a dining hall, you know, and, and share food or whatever. Now, the trip we went on was quite different. Uh, we went to the coast, to the ocean by bus. Now, the problem was is that I lived uh, near Johannesburg and the closest beach worth mentioning is a solid eight hours away. And so the school booked out an entire set of apartments for the kids to stay in. Now, I don't really know what they were thinking. Imagine if someone were to pitch this at a school meeting today. Monday morning, staff meeting. Well, Mrs. Jones, how is the school camp progressing? Well, principal, actually, it's going really well. And the principal says, tell me more. And she says, well, we've got the venue booked. It's at the beach. It's eight hours away. Principal says, mm, beach, that's fine. Well, will you keep the kids safe in the water? And the teacher says, oh, don't worry, we've got a couple of us teachers who will look after them. We can't really swim, but that's okay uh, because this is South Africa and we don't worry about these things. <laughs> the principal says, that sounds great. So how are you going to get them there? That's fine, we'll travel by bus. 50 students per bus, two teachers supervising, great student-to-teacher ratio. And will you stop along the way? Yes, yes, we will, says the teacher. Um, we, we're going to take all 100 kids and um, enter like an army of ants onto the lolly shop that's about four hours into the drive. We'll leave the kids there to run around for a bit and go nuts. Uh, great, says the principal. Is that the one with only two toilets? Yes, that's the one. Tell me, teacher, what about the accommodation? Yes, well, this is great. We have all the kids booked an apartment by themselves. Four children per room, no situation, uh, no supervision, free to do whatever, TV and minibar included. <laughs> Fantastic, says the principal. 
Now, that would never happen in Australia today, would it? But that was my school trip of year seven. And it was at this bus stop about four hours into the trip that my life would be changed forever. You see, I was a very shy child. You might not think that now, but I was a very shy child. I had one friend, one friend only in primary school. And I knew lots of people, but there was really only one friend that I counted as my own. He was my best friend. That's easy if you've only got one friend. Uh, And he is the person I trusted above all others, you know. So we climbed back onto the bus after our stop at the lolly shop, and I could see he was, he was a little bit antsy, a little bit excited about something. And as I sat next to him, he excitedly leant over and he whispered to me, and he says, hey, check this out. Look what I stole from the shop. And out of his pocket, he proudly drew a little car, you know, one of these little matchbox cars. And it devastated me. It devastated me. I had an identity crisis at that moment, a wrestle in my soul, and in fact, I would never be the same again. By this one act, my best friend devastated me. It really did. And I knew, even as a child then, that, that I had a choice to make. I was a kid who always kept the rules. You know, Even back then, I was someone who, who sort of thought rules were good and they were there for a reason, and you only break them for good reason, and and stealing a little toy is not a good reason to break a rule. And my best friend here had had broken one of the Ten Commandments, you know, and so I was faced with one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make, even here in primary schools. Do I tell on my friend or not? Do I destroy the only real friendship I have in the hopes of helping him face the consequences of his choices? Or do I keep my mouth shut and protecting. Well, lucky for me, I had at least another four hours to figure that out. Now, I didn't tell on him, not to the school teachers, but I did eventually tell my mum, and then his mum, and it was one of the most toughest, difficult things I've ever had to do, and it took me more than a week to actually get the courage up to do something about it. Now, to his mother's credit, she drove him back to that petrol station with the toy to go and pay for it and apologise to the attendant. This lady is my hero. She actually died only about two or three months ago. Um, But she made sure that she drove him back to that petrol station. I'm sure that car trip wasn't awkward at all. (laughs) But indeed, it wrecked our friendship. And it was probably one of the most difficult things I had to do up until that time. But that one action defined my life in many ways for the next several years. That one decision uh, set in motion a bunch of uh, choices and and actions that came from it. And in the end, we ended up going to different schools. He ended up being a death metal singer, and I ended up being a pastor of a church. (laughs) By God's grace, he actually saved my friend years and years later. Uh, Now, I'm not claiming that that's because I told on my friend. But um, uh, that is, that is, that's part of his testimony. But have you ever had a moment like this in your life? A, a moment, a decision where, where whatever you chose changed the course of your life, you know, where, where this one particular decision set in place a, a series of events that dictated how the next several months and years would actually play out in your life. Maybe you, you had to choose one job over another. One uni offer over another. 
uh, one uh, choice that dictated who you met, who your friends were, who you hung out with, and who ultimately changed your life. One partner over another. Maybe you've had to break off a relationship because it was leading you down a dangerous and toxic path or negatively affecting your life, even though you deeply cared about that person. For many of us here, we've had to make the choice to leave the countries we grew up in to come and find a home here in Australia. This choice that dictated how people see you back home, how your old friends interact with you, and what kind of future you have for your children. These kinds of choices, these moments of decision have massive ongoing effects in our lives. They define who we are for the next several years. Today is Good Friday. It is a day where our world goes crazy for chocolate and bunnies. Good Friday has somehow become yet another opportunity for our consumerist culture to extract coins from us. But that has never been what Easter is about. Easter is not about bunnies and chocolates. It's never been about bunnies and chocolate. Easter Friday, Good Friday, is about one of these momentous moments that define your future, that set in motion events that will determine who you are for all eternity. Friends, every single one of us has to wrestle with what the events of Good Friday mean mean to us, how they impact us, how they will shape our future. And today, as we look at our text, we're going to be looking at two things. The first is that we need to worship Jesus because he was abandoned for our sake. And already our songs and our reflection has focused on this part. So I read here from verse 45, uh, and just 45 and 46. Now, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about uh, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And friends, we need to understand that this darkness that was all over the land was a sign of God's judgment. This was a supernatural darkness. This wasn't just some particularly heavy storm or like a solar eclipse or something. Uh, This happened at the time of Passover. Now, Passover always happens at or around the the, the full moon. And a solar eclipse, by the laws of science, which I don't understand, can only ever happen when the moon is in a new moon phase, you know, when it doesn't shine at all. So this wasn't a natural phenomenon that somehow lasted for three hours as a solar eclipse. This was a supernatural darkness of judgment that lasted for hours. This was divine judgment, pure and simple. It reminds us, it takes us back to the, 12, uh, the ten plagues in Egypt where the ninth plague was darkness that came over the land. And what happened there is that God delivered his people through the death of the firstborn, which follows immediately after this plague of darkness. The same thing is happening here. Jesus, God's firstborn, chose to die in order to set God's people free. But notice what happens during this time. God's judgment on sin is actually being poured out on Jesus. He goes through absolute agony. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
Notice what Jesus doesn't say in this moment. He doesn't say, my father, why have you abandoned me? He says, my God. You see, in this moment, Jesus is cut off from feeling God's presence as loving father. God is there present only in his judgment, in his wrath over sin. That is what Jesus is going through. And the problem is, friends, when we look back at these events that happened almost 2,000 years ago now, we can be tempted to look at them from the outside, to be sad for the suffering, perhaps, of this one man without it really affecting or changing us. We might be sad at what happened to Jesus, but it's even possible for us as believers to remain unmoved, unchanged and unaffected by what happened. But sadness and shock and perhaps even disgust at what's happening to Jesus at this point is actually not enough. You see, when we see Jesus on the cross, we need to be wrenched on the inside. Our hearts need to be twisted in pain, to be turned and feel the hurt, far beyond a kind of vague sadness that, that this thing happened all this time ago. And the reason for this, the reason why we need such a strong reaction, that the reason that Scripture demands such a strong response to Jesus' crucifixion is because Jesus is going through this agony because of you. Jesus is on the cross because of me. It is our sin, your sin, my sin, that put him there. It is our actions that cause that suffering and pain and abandonment. It is our choices to disobey God and his moral law that flow like a river of fire of torment on our Saviour. You did that. I did that. We put Jesus on that cross. The old gospel hymn asks the question, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, brother. Yes, sister. We were there. It is our faces in the crowd shouting crucify. It is my sin and your sin that blackened out the sky and it was God's righteous wrath against our actions that are poured out on Christ Jesus on that moment. Don't you see? It says what John Stott said famously, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must see the cross as something done by us. Our world would have you believe that Easter is about family, as good as that is, about Easter egg hunts, about bunnies and chocolate. But how empty is that? 
How meaningless, how lifeless compared to what happens on the cross. Can you say with me, friend, that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? We must understand that Jesus' death on the cross is not just a momentous moment in your life. It is the momentous moment in your life. It is the moment when everything changes for you. It changes your purpose in life. It changes the course of your life. It changes what you value in life. It changes how you bring up your children. It changes how you spend your free time. It changes how you invest your money. It changes who you hang out with, what your hobbies are, what, uh, and what you talk about at, uh, around the dinner table. It changes Everything, your fundamental identity, who you are, changes at that moment. It changes everything because Jesus willingly took on being utterly abandoned by God so that we would not have to be. Therefore, we owe it to him to utterly abandon the things of this world in order to be with him. Does this sound radical to you? Does this sound outrageous to you? I mean, doesn't our world tell us to look after number one, to make sure we're happy, to follow our heart, that this is the single most important guiding principle for today? If this sounds radical to you, friends, it is only because we have not fully grasped what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because the more clearly we see what Jesus did on that cross, the more wholeheartedly we are going to surrender the lordship of our lives over to him. And the truth is that there are really only two options that each and every human being needs to face. Jesus' death on the cross is, is something that every single one of us has to deal with. Either he died and rose from the dead, in which case you only have one option, which is to recognize him as Lord and commit your life to him and worship him only, or he didn't. And then all of this is pointless, and we are, as the Apostle Paul says, to be pitied above all others because we have deceived ourselves. Either way, you have to deal with Jesus on the cross. So will you accept him as your Lord and take the next step to live a life in service to him or reject him and live apart from him for all eternity, away from him, in that eternal damnation of God's abandonment. You must choose. You have to deal with this. There is no option to not answer that question. Friends, worship Jesus because he took your sin on his shoulders. Worship Jesus because he is worthy to be worshipped. The second thing our text tells us, you know, we've seen that we need to worship Jesus as Lord. The second thing is all the reasons why he is worth worshipping. Why Jesus is worth worshipping as Lord. So I read from verse 50. But Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice he gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two, from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks split. And then verse 54, When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, 
This man was the Son of God. So why is Jesus worth worshipping as Lord? Well, our text gives us two reasons. He's worth worshipping because he chose the moment to die. And he's worth worshipping because his death achieved its purpose. Look again at verse 15. He chose the moment to die. Verse 50, he cried out again and with a loud voice he gave up his spirit. Now, when we read that, we think that that's just kind of a euphemism for how he died. But no, it's actually a choice Jesus makes. Have you noticed this? Have you thought about this before? Human beings, we don't have the power to give up our spirits. We don't get to choose the moment of our death. I mean, sure, you can, you can kill yourself, that's true. You can do away with your body, but we don't have the power within us to give up our spirit. That's something that only Christ can do. But friends, notice that this is no accident that Jesus chose to give up his spirit at exactly this moment. You know, this is the consistent wisp, uh, witness of all the, all the gospel writers. John says in verse 28 that uh, of the chapter where he, I don't remember what it is, but where he records the crucifixion, he says, Jesus waited until his work, his suffering, was completed. He says, it is finished, and then he bows his head and gave up his spirit. In Luke, Jesus uh, prays to God and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he breathes his last. And here, Jesus chooses as well the moment to give up his spirit. Now, Notice, friends, Jesus did not die until the work was done. He did not die until he had fully paid for all the sin of those he came to save. He did not die until his suffering was complete and he did not give up his spirit until God's wrath over our sin was completely poured out on him. We talked before and we said it was my sin, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished, right? It was not until the salvation of all those who believed was accomplished that Jesus gave up his spirit. Now, how do we know this? Because when does this happen? When does Jesus give up his spirit? He does so at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, that seems like a very strange detail to put in there, doesn't it? This is something we read over because we don't know our Bibles. But it is exactly at this time that the priests in the temple make their sacrifices in the temple. It is at 3 p.m. that the sacrifices are offered to cover over the sins of the people. And it is at 3 o'clock that Jesus, our sacrifice, is finally offered and dies to cover over our sin. Isn't that amazing? You see, Jesus is worth worshipping because he chose exactly this moment to give up his spirit, to be our sacrifice, or in the words or not the words of Henny this morning, behold the lamb who takes away the sin, the sacrifice who takes away our sin. Jesus chose the moment of his death when all the sacrifices were killed to cover over people's sin. It's amazing. But more importantly, perhaps, is that Jesus is worth worshipping because his death 
actually achieved its purpose. It did what it was supposed to do. You see, at exactly this moment that Jesus gives up his spirit, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, torn up by God himself. Now, if you have been following along in our sermon series, you know, we've been looking at the big picture story that the Bible has been telling, and we call this the Garden to the Garden City. Um, And if you've been following along, you will know that the temple curtain, the curtain uh, was there to divide the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, from the people. It was a curtain you could not go behind unless you had been cleansed ritualistically through a sacrifice. And the reason is that God would, and his presence would be behind the curtain. And if you came into God's presence with any spot or stain of sin, then you would die. God is this all-consuming fire that burns up any impurity. And the people who, did not, uh, who were not clean could not come into his presence as a result. A temple curtain was a gracious way for God to live with his people in their midst, but for them to survive his wrath for sin. It was a way for God to protect sinful people. But now, now that the ultimate sacrifice had finally been offered, now that the people had once for all been cleaned through the true sacrifice of Jesus, that curtain was no longer necessary. And in fact, what does our text say? It says, as soon as Jesus dies, as soon as he gives up his spirit, as soon as it was finished, as soon as his work was done, he gave up his spirit and suddenly the t- curtain was torn. Verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the word we have translated there as suddenly is probably better translated in the old English way, lo, behold, look, see. Uh, It is, is a way of literally pointing us to look at the thing that matters at that moment. As Jesus gives up his spirit, look, the temple curtain is being torn in two from top to bottom. The gospel writers want us to see, to look, to understand that the work of Jesus on the cross actually worked. It achieved its purpose. This sacrifice at the time when sacrifices were offered did what it was supposed to do. Now that separation, that gulf that existed between humans and God is gone for good, torn up by God, not just torn up a little bit, but torn up in two, fully destroyed, completely broken, never to be mended again. Jesus' death achieved its purpose. That is why he is worth worshipping. He is worth worshipping because he can choose the moment of his own dying. He chose the moment when death meant that he was a sacrifice for his people. He is worth worshipping because his death achieved its purpose. He is worth worshipping because he did that for you. That is what Easter is all about. And so the question, I think, that we have to wrestle with is, will we? Will we see this as a momentous moment that sets the course of our life? Will we come 
and worship the Lord who is worthy to be worshipped. Will you come? Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect and we think again that it was our sin that held you there until it was accomplished, until the work that you had come to do actually achieved its purpose, Lord, as we reflect on this again this morning, we pray that you will not leave us unaffected, that you will turn our eyes again to Jesus on the cross and see that this is the moment that defines who we are as your people. Lord, stir our hearts into action in love to worship you as the only true Lord of our lives. We pray this, Lord, not because we deserve it, not because we have ever deserved it, but because we see our faces in the crowd yelling crucify and yet you still died for us while we were still sinners. What a saviour we have. Lord, we pray that you will make this true in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.